Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 8. Last week, I continued the deeper dive into the Book of Numbers. In that episode, covering the Jebusites and their home city of Jebus, believed by most to have been Jerusalem. I also covered what is known about Kibroth Hedavah, Taborah, and Hazroth. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing the same theme, kicking off with the Amorites. And with that, let's get started. The Amorites were an ancient group, typically thought to have lived in the area around what is today Syria, so north of Israel. Their language was Semitic, and that makes it related to Hebrew, which shouldn't come as a surprise considering the two groups were native to the same area. Before covering their history from an extra-biblical perspective, let's touch on how they are presented in the Old Testament. Overall, when found in the Bible, it's thought the word Amorites pertains to a people who lived in the mountains of Canaan. In Genesis 10, they're presented as descending from Canaan, the son of Ham, the son of Noah. In the text, they're sandwiched between the Jebusites and the Girgashites. It's among these groups and several other inhabitants of Canaan where they are often listed in at least half a dozen places in Genesis alone. Later in the Old Testament, much later in the book of Amos, the people themselves are described as being tall, like the height of cedars, and who was as strong as oaks. What's unclear here is if this was more figurative or literal. Leaning towards the literal are biblical scholars who equate the Amorites with giants. And of course, giants are not unheard of in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, an Amorite king named Og was described as the last remnant of the Rephim. These people, too, are generally described as giants. So, maybe there's something to this. There may be more on these legendary Rephim when I get to that part of the book. Throughout the Old Testament, the Amorites and the Canaanites are thought to have been used somewhat interchangeably. And, of course, referring to the people that occupied the land the Israelites would eventually end up in. So, where was this land, at least in a biblical sense? Piecing together mentions from Genesis to Deuteronomy to Joshua to Ezekiel, we can begin to get a sense. But a bit of a forewarning. Obviously, these different books were written at different times, in some cases with centuries in between and the boundaries of the land occupied by any group of people move with time, in some cases as part of a slow progression, like through a migration. I'll get to that sense in a minute. In other cases, very rapidly, like what follows after a decisive military conflict. With that caveat out of the way, they generally lived in the area extending from the hills west of the Dead Sea to Hebron, which would have included all of Gilead and Bashan, all of this on their western border. Their territory then ran east across the Jordan River to the Jordan Valley on its eastern bank. There's no mention how far north or south, but a relatively safe assumption 
would be as north as the Sea of Galilee and south as far as the Dead Sea, plus or minus. The text also gives us insight into their political organization. It seems they were a rather loose confederation of different people, maybe tribes. We can deduce this because at one time they had two kings, Sihon and the previously mentioned Og. This is also seen in Joshua, where five kings were simultaneously defeated by Moses' successor. Later in the text of that book, even more of their kings were defeated. No mention if these were contemporaries of the first five, or replacements. Also, the terms kings could have been used in a very loose sense, and they may have been familial heads. But either way, there were several worthy of mentioning, with no description of any sort of hierarchical structure. So, loosely organized. Like I briefly mentioned last week, some considered the Jebusites to be a subset of Amorites. This is gleaned from the wording in Deuteronomy 1, where the mountains of Judea are mentioned as being controlled by the Amorites, at least their southern slopes. Finally, when the prophet Samuel was walking in the region and recording the history, he mentioned there was a peace between the Amorites and the Israelites. This was when the Israelite tribes were transitioning from the period of the judges to the rule under a king, in this case, King Saul. More specifically, it's thought that the Gibeonites were their descendants, and these people made a covenant with the Hebrews. King Saul would later violate the agreement, and as punishment, God sent a famine to Israel. There will be more on these events when I get to the book of Samuel. And that's it for their mentions in the Old Testament. The outside historic record aligns somewhat with what's found in the text. What is known about the Amorites is that they were a Semitic-speaking people from Syria, who lived in southern Mesopotamia from about the 21st century BC to the end of the 17th century BC. This period is well before the Exodus. Their language is a form of Akkadian, a dialect, but is difficult to understand. This difficulty is mostly due to the limited understanding of their proper names, which are unlike Akkadian. What we do know about the language are from tablets found at Mari, a city in eastern Syria, and dating to about 1800 BC. During this period, they founded, or at least expanded, several prominent city-states. Included in this was Babylon. When they arrived on the scene there, Babylon was a small town, but under their control, it became a moderately powerful city-state. Most of this is known, or deduced, from the inclusion of Amaru, their principal deity, in Akkadian and Sumerian text. But, if this period of control ended before the Exodus, and since they are mentioned in the post-Exodus Old Testament, we have to be able to bridge that time gap somehow. I'll get to that in a minute. First, I'm backing up to their ancient, ancient history. The earliest we see mention of them is from ancient Sumerian sources dating to around 2400 BC. I cover the Sumerians in Chapter 2, Episodes 13 through 19, released some three years ago. 
These texts refer to an area known as the land of the Amorites, calling them the Martu, which was probably their word meaning Westerner. And that makes sense, as the Amorites lived west of Sumer. In the earliest known Sumerian text, all western lands beyond the Euphrates, including what is now Syria, Lebanon, and Israel, is called the land of the Martu. The Ebla tablets, dating to about 2500 BC, also mention them as living in the narrow drainage basin of the upper and middle Euphrates in northern Syria. It's thought this was a region west of the Euphrates and may have included Canaan. Other early writings, in these cases from Akkad, Egypt, and Assyria, also mention the Amorites. Most of these connect them with the mountainous region in northern Syria, and the general context of the writing presents them as an uncivilized and nomadic people associated with the mountains. An Akkadian tablet records that the Akkadian king, Narimsen, along with his successor, Shar Kalisheri, both led successful campaigns against the Amorites, probably in the mid-23rd century BC. Other terms used to describe them referred to pastures, so they may have been keepers of livestock. Then, around 2200 BC, there appears to have been a drought in the region. And what happens to people when they can no longer get the sustenance necessary for life? They move. And according to some sources, this may have been about the time Abraham migrated to Egypt. Other sources think Abraham hadn't been born yet. But in the case of the Amorites, the drought hit, and they migrated to southern Mesopotamia. Uncovered Sumerian texts referred to the Amorites as nomadic tribes under chiefs who forced themselves into lands they needed to graze their herds. This migration is noted in Sumerian texts that detail how when the Martu arrived, the city of Uruk in southern Iraq built a wall to keep them out. And not just a wall around the city, but a 170-mile or 270-kilometer wall that ran from the Tigris to the Euphrates. Only a significant, threatening invasion from a formidable force would elicit such a response. But the wall wasn't to simply prevent a military invasion. The Amorites, being the herders that they were, brought their livestock with them, and the grazing animals movement could also have been hindered by such a wall. There was one further conflict between the migrating Amorites and the Akkadians and Sumerians. The latter two groups viewed the Amorites as far too primitive for their society, uneducated backwoods simpletons. The overriding tone is one of both contempt and disgust. So what does this mean? To quote the clearest translation of the text, The Martu, who know no grain, the Martu, who know no house nor town, the boars of the mountains. The Martu, who digs up truffles, who does not bend his knees, who eats raw meat, who has no house during his lifetime, who is not buried after death. End quote. Most of that is fairly clear, except for the bending of knees. This is not likely a reference to the way they walked 
but probably meant that they did not grow crops. No real agriculture, instead living off their livestock and off the land. Eventually, the slowly advancing invasion would lead to the destabilization and eventual downfall of the third dynasty of Ur. This was also covered in the history of the Sumerians. And this is how the Amorites came to control territory well east of Canaan. It was here, in what is today Iraq, that the Amorites exercised control over the cities of Kish, Isin, and Larsa, and Babylon, among many others. As Sumer collapsed, with the whole nature and vacuum thing, other regional powers began to rise, or in some cases, re-rise. This was when Assyria reclaimed its independence, along with several city-states like Isin and Larsa. In what is today Iran, Elam began territorial expansion. More on them in just a second. At the same time, several Amorite chieftains in southern Mesopotamia took advantage of the failing empire to seize power and territory for themselves. Do note this was after they had come to the region, so not a direct, immediate grabbing of power, but more of a taking advantage of the weakening Sumerians. We know this because the text from the era began to indicate those in power had Amorite names. All of this would lead to the Elamites seizing control of the Sumerian city of Ur around 2000 BC. By some timelines, this was when Abraham, a native of Ur, left that city. A little bit later, the old Assyrian Empire would gain control of Mesopotamia. But this was not to last, as even their last couple of kings had Amorite names. What follows was most likely the most well-known Amorite of all. King Hammurabi, who took control of Babylon in the early to mid-18th century BC. His rule is thought to be the peak years of the great Amorite kingdom. The common view is that the Amorites continued to exercise this loose control, and the territory was essentially a decentralized organization of Amorite chieftains, like what's seen in the Old Testament. There were other societal implications. Previously, with Sumer and Akkad, land and livestock were considered the property of the king, or the deity, or the temple. But with the Amorites, things were a bit different. This, too, is a typical feature with decentralized power. In their case, the king, or better stated in the plural, the kings, would rent out or give away land. They also tended to reduce or eliminate taxes and slavery. All of this led to an increase in agricultural output, increasing trade, and a generally free citizenry. The effects of this would echo for centuries. To one group, there was a downside, and that group was the priest. They could no longer demand tributes in the name of their gods, nor were they seen as doling out divine favors. But the people didn't turn away from these deities and continued to worship the Sumero-Akkadian gods. We know this because the older Sumerian myths and epic tales continued to be transcribed, translated, and in some cases adapted with minor alterations. And another facet of their society remained unchanged from Sumer. The Amorite art for the era is virtually identical to the prior Sumerian renditions. 
these Amorite kingdoms would maintain control over the region for about 400 years, from 2000 to 1595 BC. Note that if the exodus occurred when it's generally thought to have happened, around 1300 BC, and if the Israelites were in Egypt for about 400 years, then the Israelites would not have been present in the region when the Amorites finally fell from power. Of course, nothing lasts forever, and the Amorite Empire would fall, after being slowly whittled away at its boundaries beginning around 1740 BC. They would cling to Babylon until the Hittites finally defeated them in 1595 BC. Those Amorites living in Iraq likely stayed and were absorbed into the culture of whichever power controlled whatever territory they happened to be situated in. After this, what came to be known as Amorite territory was the land from where they originated, Syria. More specifically, their territory, formerly known as Amaru, hence the name Amorites, extended from Kadesh, so on the Orentes River in Syria, southward to Canaan, a shadow of its former self. With its borders having shrunk to its original territory, and with new territorial powers, what remained of the Amorites in Canaan came to be controlled by the Hittites. Then, around 1365 BC, the Middle Assyrian Empire established dominance over the region. This control would last until about 1050 BC. While they were under these two empires, the Hittites and then the Assyrians, they were slowly absorbed into those cultures, and outside of the Old Testament, there were few references to them. Now for a little sidebar that intersects with 20th century European history. In the 19th century AD, an Austrian archaeologist and anthropologist, Phoenix von Lusken, wrote that the Amorites were fierce, tall nomads. At that time, they came to be called Aryan, and were thought of as warriors that dominated the weaker Israelites. You should begin to see where this is going. An Austrian, Aryans, dominating the Hebrews. To his credit, von Lusken would abandon his theory, but the wheels of opportunity were already set in motion. The British-born German philosopher, Houston Stuart Chamberlain, then proposed that both King David and Jesus were Aryans, descended from the Amorites. In the 20th century, the Nazi party would run with this thought. So, there's that. What the theory ignores, among many other things, is that the Amorites' language was far too different from the Hebrews and other groups for there to be any sort of confusion. But, if anyone didn't let the facts get in the way of propaganda, it was the Nazis. And that's it for the Amorites. The next two geographic places I'll cover are mentioned in Numbers chapter 13, verse 21, that reads, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zen to Rehob, near Lebahamoth. Of course, I've already covered the wilderness of Zen, so that leaves Rehob and Lebahamoth. The first, Rehob, was a significant bronze and Iron Age city located in the Jordan Valley, about two miles or three kilometers west of the Jordan River. 
Before starting the little that is known about this city, do note that there are some researchers who don't think the place I'm about to cover is the same place mentioned in the text. Of course, I'm mentioning it for two reasons. First, others disagree. And second, other than this, there's no other place known by this name. Moving along. Archaeological finds from this area date to as early as 10,000 BC. It appears to have been relatively consistently occupied ever since. Backing up to 10,000 BC, among the most interesting finds are multiple instances of partially to fully intact beehives, a total of 30. So, they had semi-domesticated bees for the production of honey. Remember this when you read of God promising to bring the Israelites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And about these bees, the remains of some of the actual insects were uncovered and DNA samples taken. They were genetically similar to the current Anatolian bee, now found only north of the city in Turkey, some 250 miles or 400 kilometers away. So, they could have been native to the region and their home territory has moved, or they could have been imported. The current theory is that they were imported as Anatolian bees tend to be less aggressive than the native species. More importantly, they yield three to eight times more honey, just what you need to have it flowing through the land. And, given that it's a fertile agricultural valley, this isn't surprising. It would be occupied through the era of the Old Testament. An uncovered artifact from that era does mention a name that some read as Elisha, but the context of the Ostrakhan yields little further information and it's likely not much more than a random coincidence. But do note that it's thought that the name Elisha was relatively rare in that time and place. Even if it is the same as the Old Testament prophet, it could simply be a third-party reference to him. Another Ostrakhan, and remember that an Ostrakhan is nothing more than a piece of pottery that has writing on it. This other Ostrakhan has the familial name Nilmshai on it, and Nilmshai was the name of the father and grandfather to the biblical king Jehu, a king of northern Israel who reigned between 841 and 814 BC. Maybe related. Maybe. Overall, in the late Bronze Age, so between about 1550 and 1200 BC, Rehob was one of the largest cities in the region. The latter part of this span would have been when the spies ventured through the area. So, how large was one of the largest in the region? It was estimated to have had a population somewhere around 2,000 people. Everything is relative. I'll spare you the seemingly random listing of artifacts uncovered from other eras at the site. Just know, it's been essentially continuously occupied for over 12,000 years, so people were certainly there when the spies were out spying. And that's it for Rehob. The last place I'll cover today was also mentioned in Numbers 13. And it's this place known as Lebahamoth. At least, that's what the Hebrew-speaking people called it. In other languages and societies, it's usually called Labway. It's located in what is today Lebanon, in the mountains of that country, 
mountains curiously named the Anti-Lebanon Mountains. This town was settled at least as early as the 7th century BC. In the Old Testament, this is thought to be the same place as the northern border of King Solomon's territory, and sometimes described as the entrance to Hamath, which makes you wonder where this Hamath was that this place served as an entrance to. That city is on the banks of the Orontes River in west-central Syria, north of Canaan. If true, the land was later lost to the Assyrians, and after that, King Jeroboam II restored the territory to Israel, a restoration that also included territory reaching to the Dead Sea. So, piece it all together, and you end up with a probable valley through the mountains that led to the city of Hamath. Circling back to the biblical text, Remember that it was at the entrance to this valley where the spies reached their northernmost travels. So, from essentially the Negev Desert as far north as the mountain passage that led to Hamath. At this site, archaeologists have uncovered many Neolithic artifacts, but since they're Neolithic, they all predate by several millennia when the Hebrew spies may have arrived there. There were remnants of a possible Roman temple uncovered, but this would have been built well after the spies. So, no artifacts from the time that the spies were there. At least not yet. Of course, the place barely merited a mention, except to show how far these twelve men actually scouted into Canaan. And that's all that's really known about Lebahamoth, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the journey through numbers. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.